0: Amy Olberding's new book, The Wrong of Rudeness, Learning Modern Civility from Ancient Chinese Philosophy, is a joy to read, both entertaining and rich in ideas. The Wrong of Rudeness asks a key question for our times. How do we interact with each other, especially in politically contentious situations? Olberding addresses this and related issues by bringing our modern challenges into dialogue with thinkers from early China. Weaving together modern cultural references with innovative readings of classic Chinese texts, Olberding makes the argument that good manners are the way we practice core human values in everyday life. This is a book to read, share, and discuss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm Natasha Heller, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Amy Olberding about her new book, The Wrong of Rudeness. Hi, Amy. Hi. Hi. So let's get started. You're a professor of philosophy at the University of Oklahoma with a focus on early Chinese philosophy and ethics. Could you tell us a little bit about how these interests developed?
1: Yeah, um, I was uh, one of the fortunate undergraduates in philosophy in that I got to study Chinese philosophy uh, when I was doing my bachelor's degree. And that spurred an interest in um, studying East Asian philosophy in general. Uh, I went to graduate school in Hawaii, which at the time Roger Ames was teaching there, a very dynamic uh, teacher. And uh, I just found it captivating. One of the things that drew me to it was that I found Confucian philosophy was much more captivated by everyday morality and by everyday experiences, the prosaic, the ordinary. And I think that even even now, we haven't fully, uh, particularly in the Western Academy, tapped sort of all that's available there. So I wanted to be um, able to study that and able to communicate it to others.
0: Great. So today, as I mentioned, we'll be talking about your second book, The Wrong of Rudeness. Can you tell us
1: a little bit about how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, I was interested in... Uh, My initial interest in early Confucian philosophy was about the uh, philosophical literature that's available on ritual mourning for the dead. And once you start looking at ritual mourning for the dead, you see that it's part of this much bigger project, the project of Li, which we would um, see as a concept that encompasses both manners and civility. And I thought that it was... First of all, just interesting how much attention is given to that in Confucian philosophy. But also it, it struck me as that this is this is an area of moral experience that we just don't think about very often. And then, of course, um, public culture has declined in terms of how... Uh, Well, our political culture certainly has declined in terms of civility, and it seems that this has had a a noticeable impact on the kinds of experiences that even everyday people are having. So, for example, my father is in a coffee group with a bunch of um, other men who are elderly like him. They've been meeting once a week on Fridays at 8 a.m. at a little place called Grumps in Uh, rural Missouri. And he found that even his coffee group were failing to get along and were being very unpleasant to each other. And it uh, it just seemed to me that this is an area where philosophy should be able to help. And that Confucian philosophy in particular would see that kind of degradation of ordinary experience as something that's tragic and worth our moral attention and so I got motivated then to try to bring what the early Confucians say about our interpersonal interactions to bear on the kinds of experience that people like my father have and my father read the book so um, that's very pleasing to me. Did you enjoy the book? He did. did. Help <laughs> he did. I don't know that it helped with his coffee group, but um yeah, he 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 mailed a copy to Oprah Winfrey. That's great. Yeah, because he thought that she would like it too. <laughs> so so I'm I'm very pleased by that. He's a good he's a good publicist for me. So, turning to the
0: contents of the book itself, um You've already mentioned this distinction, uh, but it's something that you explore in the first introductory chapter, and that's the distinction between good manners and civility. Can you explain this to us?
1: Sure. In Western cultural history, I'll just speak to the United States, but in the United States, um, we make a distinction between good manners, which are the things of ordinary interpersonal interactions as well as domestic life and so on, and civility, which we see as the norms that would inform how we interact in the public sphere. So we're going to be civil when we're talking politics with others, and we're going to rely on our manners when we're doing things like um, hosting people in our homes, expressing gratitude, and those kind of interpersonal skills. Um, The distinction is one that historically really doesn't make a lot of sense um, unless you factor in the changing economic trends in the 18th and 19th century, so that as you have um, increasing social mobility, you get a a kind of division between civility and manners. In in early sources, even in early Western philosophical sources, they're treated as the same thing. Um, civility and manners are are joined largely together. Um, but in the eighteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth century, with social mobility, you have people who abruptly have money, but they don't have any of the social habits of the upper class. So they have financial capital, but they don't have social capital. So During this period, we see the rise of the etiquette manual. And an etiquette manual would just tell people how the better classes behave. And it was largely a genre that was directed at women. So we see that etiquette and good manners become more feminized. And they really sort of break apart um, during this period. And they've stayed apart so that if you go down to a bookstore If you're looking for books on good manners, they're going to be alongside the wedding books um, and very feminine, tilting um, kinds of volumes and interests, self-help, that sort of thing. If you want books on civility, you're going to look in the politics section. And I think that that's a distinction that really isn't very helpful. Um, And it's one that the Confucians don't recognize. So in the book, I'm really trying to put them back together. And say that there really isn't a, a good distinction that we should be making between how we interact in our political lives versus how we would interact in uh face-to-face encounters in our homes and and so on. So the looking at the second chapter,
0: you know, I guess we all aspire perhaps to good manners and civility, but we often are drawn in the other direction as well. And the second chapter is titled Temptations of Incivility. Um, and you talk here about critical righteous incivility. Can you explain the different temptations of incivility and especially this notion of critical righteous incivility?
1: Yeah. And this is, um, this is an idea. I really developed out of the work of another philosopher, Cheshire Calhoun, Um who's written, I think, some really, uh, who's written really well on civility, really insightful stuff that's influenced me enormously. But when we do think about incivility, um, the norms of civility are really, Calhoun would say, they're about what people actually do. So they're they're just the practices that our society follows. And so to some extent, when I ask myself, What does it mean to be civil? The answer to that is very straightforward at a superficial level. It just means to to go by the norms and rules that my society has. And so there's a kind of rule following that is part of being civil. But of course, if we're mature moral agents, we're not just going to follow rules in a blunt and unthinking way. Sometimes the rules themselves are going to bother us. Sometimes we'll be in circumstances where we think we need to break the rules because there's a higher moral good that's served by it. Um, And that's what I'm calling critical righteous incivility. A kind of paradigm of that would be when someone who I judge to be a moral monster, um, I'm meeting them and if I'm going to be civil in the norm following sense, I'm going to shake their hand. But critical righteous incivility, my own moral sense, my conscience might motivate me to say, I'm not shaking this person's hand. And I think that this kind of rudeness is especially tempting in the climate, the, the political climate that we inhabit now. But I think it I, I think it has its place, but I think it's presently overused. And I think it's we're tempted to it in part because our our kind of rhetoric encourages it. I think we can be tempted to it by tribalism, where we want, you know, sort of my side wants to thrash your side, and so um, we'll be motivated to it just out of a kind of pugilism, and I think a kind of lack of humility can inform it as well, because we we can use incivility, critical righteous incivility, to effectively not just make but announce moral judgments about other people. And there's a real question, I think, an open question about whether we should be demonstrating those judgments on all of the levels that we tend to do. Um, so that I, I'm not sure that uh certainly the social good is served by um our refusing to shake many people's hands, not just sort of the most egregious cases, but um anyone who disagrees with us. And I think that the impulse is to um, a kind of tribalistic or social dominant approach uh, to these matters is very damaging, but it's also very tempting. Uh, we can enjoy insulting other people at a very base level, and if we think it's righteous too, or we can call it righteous, it's all the more tempting. So if
0: our temptations to incivility are primarily motivated it seems by our political commitments or our social identities what about the temptations of ba- bad manners which is the subject of your third chapter how are how are
1: these temptations different well i think this i mean i think the because we do divide them off we read the temptations differently and i think good manners in the sense we usually intend it all the stuff in those etiquette books and so on that we find in the bookstore The temptation to violate those or, more generally, just not to care very much about them is primarily something that emerges from a sense that they make us fake, right? I mean, we all have had occasions where we're having to be well-mannered and we're feeling that we're putting on a false front. So it feels like to be well-mannered is often just a kind of fakery. Rousseau talks about it as a veil Other commentators talk about it as a mask that we wear. It feels like you're hiding your real self. There's something very inauthentic feeling about it. I also think that we tend to present um, in our thinking about manners as if it's just a joyless way to be. So if you read a a columnist like Miss Manners or Judith Martin, you'll find that people often, you know, when they're complaining about manners, part of what they're complaining about is that it seems like a very tedious way to be because you're having to care about trifles. Um, And not just that you're going to have to care about trifles, but I think that you have to to really be a well-mannered person. You have to be, in some sense, all in. You've got to develop the right kinds of habits. And to develop the right kinds of habits, you're going to have to put a certain amount of energy into it. And I think for a lot of us, it just feels like manners is not the kind of thing if we're going to engage in self-improvement. We may say to ourselves, of all the ways I could improve myself, is this really where I want to go? You know, where I get better at saying thank you and please and so on. So I think that that's part of the temptation. And I think that's wrong. I think we shouldn't be be tempted in that way or We should at least resist those temptations. But that is, I think, the temptation. Right. So
0: in the fourth chapter, you start to turn in the other direction and say, like, what is it that we should be doing? Um, And you talk about these as big values. Uh, One of the examples that I thought was really compelling is your discussion of Schunz's discussion of corpses and funerals. So what can we
1: learn from this? Um, I think that Shunza is, uh, there are two pieces to this. One of them is more optimistic, but I think that the more compelling one, at least at this uh, moment in our civic lives, is Shunza. And he, and I think that he has a, a kind of dark picture and wants to say, you know, people can be pretty terrible. It's easy to be misanthropic. And um, the argument that I'm drawing from what Shunza offers comes from some of his work on mourning where he talks about how to how to handle a corpse. And his argument is you've got to physically and materially take care of the corpse because if you do nothing to it, it's just going to decay. And the rot is going to make people unable to engage respectfully. They won't be able to grieve respectfully. The, a, a kind of scorn will set in. At best, they'll get used to how disgusting the corpse is, and they'll be able to tolerate it, but only because their sensibilities have been completely coarsened. Basically, what I am what I think, based on that argument from Shinza, is you can say the same kind of thing about the living, right? That the living are just not that different from corpses in the sense that If you are around living people who are not ornamenting their conduct with respect, consideration, toleration, pro-social gestures, if we're not ornamenting ourselves that way, it's very easy to be put off the very idea of community or the idea of um, thriving in our relationships with others or civic life or discussion and debate, or shared interests, or cooperation, and so on. The idea here is that, taking Shunza on board, with civility and manners, we ornament ourselves. We restrain the kinds of things that would make us unhappy and unattractive companions for others. And in so doing, we we allow the conditions in which respect can develop and in which People do not have to coarsen up, right, and and become used to things they don't want to tolerate just in order to be around other people.
0: So chapter five continues this theme, but here you're addressing, as it says in the title, living the big values. How do we go about doing that?
1: In terms of our civility and our manners, one of the issues is Kind of exactly what's going on there. In a lot of our conduct, I think it makes sense to say that I feel a particular way or I have thoughts and dispositions and inclinations, and those parts of myself produce certain kinds of conduct. So if I want X, that will motivate me to do the kinds of activities that would lead to getting X. The Confucian picture is interesting in part because I think it it wants to say that that unidirectional move from what's inside me to my external conduct is not the only way that this works. So if I don't have pro-social feelings, if I don't have respect and consideration for my fellow human beings and so on, the Confucians wouldn't say, well, then I guess the conduct won't follow. Instead, what they would say is, well, behaving as if you do will bring those internal states along. So when we want to live our values, where we want to live in a way that is respectful, considerate, we want to be pro-social, part of what we need to do, the Confucians would suggest, is simply act that way. Right? And by acting that way, the dispositions, the internal life that goes with that can come along with it. And a second part that I think is especially compelling in what the Confucians offer is they want to say, look, when we, when we successfully do that, when I walk around in the world as if I am well disposed toward other people and as if I am well disposed toward community, One of the things I should expect to find is that they will respond to that. Um, In Confucian sources, right, there are all these claims about the effects that a virtuous person can have. And some of those claims sound fantastical. So, you know, a virtuous ruler can bend the people the way that the wind bends the grass. But one way to think about those kinds of claims is to say that, We are, because we are social creatures, we often are responsive to what we see in others. And we see this in uh, the psychologists speak of it in terms of social contagion. We have mirroring responses where the facial expression of the person I'm speaking with will influence me in terms of how my own mood and facial expression proceeds. And the idea here is just that if I'm behaving in pro social ways, I may actually find the world a place where that is confirmed and where there's more evidence for that kind of um, well disposition toward other people and toward community because they will simply be mirroring back what they see from me. And so the Confucian context is not just behave in the way that you would like to feel and the feeling will come along. It's also Behave in the way that you would like to feel, and you will find that the world supports that better. So that if I act, using an example from William James, if I act like I like people, they're much more likely to, or if I act as if people like me and I'm well disposed to them, they're much more likely to like me. Um, and so I'm creating a kind of social reality by my own gestures and conduct.
0: So it's almost as if you're going to, in the Confucian sense, fake it until you make it, but also fake it until you make the world the way you want
1: you want it to be. Yeah, that's the idea. And it doesn't always work out, but the 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 notion here is that uh, that there will be some effects, and those effects will be right. reassuring. So
0: in chapter six. Um, you open with George Washington's list of 110 rules for civility and decent behavior. We all love lists, I think. Um, but what yeah. do these kinds of are these are? Maybe you could give us a few examples, and then tell us what do these kinds of rules do for us? Because this goes sort of well beyond just sort of. Tr- behaving as if you, in the way that you want to eventually be, right? These are really specific.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think you can follow Washington's rules um, accurately anymore. I mean, some of his rules, some of my best, my favorites out of that have to do with, um, you know, not if you have a tick on, you don't pull it off when you're in the sight of others. Um you're not supposed to scratch while you eat. <laughs> um, you're not meant to um, I think there's there's one about not adjusting your garments in front of people. So a lot of it is that kind of it a lot of it is bodily management uh, sort of stuff. but there are also parts of it that really clearly have general purchase. So um, one of them is do not believe you know flying reports to the disparagement of any so we shouldn't give heed to gossip that is perniciously and negatively describing people we know that we shouldn't immediately give that kind of thing credence and we really shouldn't even be listening to it other rules have to do with simply how to look attentive right not you don't want to yawn and speaking when other people are speaking to you you shouldn't interrupt and so on. And that I think, those rules, I think, are much more clearly aligned with the kinds of conduct we would want to cultivate now. But the, the force of them, I mean, I think that the, when we talk about the big values that inform civility and manners, respect, consideration, toleration, and a, a general sort of pro-social attitude toward community and relationships, There is a a kind of issue about how do we give evidence of those in our conduct. And I talked about how, you know, you want to act like you have these values and so on. But then the question is how, right? How do I act like I have those values? There's already a, a kind of language for that. There's a social language. And the social language is just resides in the kinds of rules that we have for what it means to be polite, what it means to be civil. So to just take a basic rule, don't interrupt when someone else is speaking. This is something that expresses respect. It expresses consideration. um, It presumably even expresses toleration, right? Tolerating the other person's speech. Not interrupting is something that, you know, we take to signal important values. And my claim in this particular chapter about the rules is Treating the rules as rules is important. One, because they communicate things. I can't just express respect in any way that might please me and expect that other people will recognize it for what it is. So I can't invent my own private language of respect because no one else will know that that's what I'm communicating. And particularly for the Confucians, because they make so much more of our social dependency, I should be oriented to care that other people understand me. If what I'm trying to communicate is respect, it will matter a lot to me that they understand. Because of that, I'm going to use the language that we share, the social language, and the social language as it is expressed in the kinds of rules for conduct that we have. So that's one thing, right? I've got to follow the rules because the rules are how I make myself clear to other people. It's how I make clear that I do respect them, and it's how they will understand that I mean to respect them. But a secondary part of this that I think is important is that um, there's just no way for us to self-consciously be respectful all the time. In order to be polite, as often as it's required of us in an ordinary life, we have to rely on habit. We're not, in other words, we're not making decisions moment by moment about how to express respect or about what to do with regard to other people. A lot of it is just habituation. For habituation, the rules are um, a kind of guide in that. So that if I make it my rule, do not interrupt, barring exceptional circumstances, then I am going to be on better territory to interact in ways that are respectful with other people. And I think that this has the the purchase that I think that this has in a contemporary context that's especially useful is that we often behave differently with different people so that um, it's just a reality of the social and hierarchical arrangements of our lives, that we're going to be lo- far less likely to rudely interrupt an important person whose good favor we need. And we are going to be much more willing to interrupt a person who sits lower in the social pecking order than ourselves. Um, and because of that, if we make ourselves committed to the rules habituate ourselves to the practices that the rules represent we're much less likely to enact all kinds of pernicious hierarchies so uh, one of the examples that i use in the book right is that you know people are polite to their bosses but not to their maids and the idea is that if you had as a rule to interact civilly and politely, with all the myriad subsets of rules that entails, you wouldn't be treating the maid and the boss differently. Um, And that's why I think rules are sort of our friend um, in this, as opposed to being something that's just a burden and tedious.
0: Right. So chapter seven builds on this. Uh, Chapter seven is titled, Managing the Face. And I, I have to say that this resonated with me because I think it's something that I often do badly. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about what do you mean by managing the face and why is it important?
1: Yeah. Um, the expression I'm using there comes from a passage in the Analects where Confucius is talking about filiality. And he lists off these things that children should do for their elders, but... Um, And he says, basically, anybody can do that. But the hard part is, you know, controlling your face. And I think what he has in mind by that is that we've all, well, those of us who parent teenagers, maybe especially, right, have had the experience of someone who is on a surface level or in a summary fashion, doing what they're supposed to do. So they're performing their duty, but they're doing it in an incredibly begrudging way. Their face bespeaks unwillingness or hostility, and this is a very lively part of human communication. And it is part of how we know how people are oriented toward us. And I think one of the things that the Confucians get right is saying that uh, you know, moral action is not just about what we do, but the style in which we do it. So that, as we all intuitively recognize, if I apologize with a sneer and gritted teeth, I haven't really apologized. Um, Or if I am not interrupting you, but I'm rolling my eyes while you talk, I really haven't succeeded in the polite gesture of, not interrupting you. So there's a kind of bodily management that comes along with being civil and being polite. And I think that this is something that, well, I mean, I think they recognize this. Oddly enough, I think small school children are taught this. Um, One of the most, I, I think, vivid ways of expressing it. When my daughter was in kindergarten, she came home and she was my husband was telling me something and I rolled my eyes and she gasped and said, mom, you're eye bullying. Right. And the idea was that if you roll your eyes, you're eye bullying the person who's speaking. And I, at the time I thought that was hilarious. I still think it's pretty funny, but I, you know, eye rolling is a kind of hostility that is spoken through the face and so what the Confucians are interested in, in terms of bodily management, is just to recognize that an act is never well captured just in a summary description of it. You need, When you see someone actually apologize or you see someone listening to another, there are all kinds of judgments we make about how they're oriented based on what their face is saying, their posture, tone of voice, and so on. And these are a significant part of what it means to um, express ourselves pro-socially, right? I mean, these are, these are things that are, um, it's, it's one of the ways in which we can express all kinds of biases about people through our faces. It's one of the ways in which we can undermine people. Um, and all that can be done while superficially or in a summary fashion doing what's correct, um, and so in that chapter, really what I'm after is just to say, it's not enough that you follow the rules. There's a way to do it. There, There is a kind of bodily management um, that's involved. And and one of the things I, I hasten to say that I mentioned sort of toward the end of the chapter, I don't think you can go from that to trying to manage everybody else's bodies, right? I mean, I think there's a, a kind of first person perspective that's necessary with this so that Um, you know, one of the pernicious aspects, um, of manners can be when we're making all kinds of ungenerous judgments of other people's bodily expressions. And so I don't see that as going hand in hand with a commitment on one's own part to try to style your actions so that you're communicating what you intend to communicate or what you would aspire to communicate.
0: So these that sort of managing the face part is connected to that inner state, right? So we might know how to, to follow the rules and develop those habits, but then the next step is to align that sort of inner sense with that outer performance.
1: Yeah. And, and I think the issue here goes back to um, the communicating. So that if I have an attentiveness to to sort of my dependency on other people and my sociality, I will care that they understand what I'm communicating. And so that creates an imperative to pay attention to all the different ways we communicate. And since we do communicate with our bodies and with our faces and the tone of voice and all of that, um, managing that is, is just, at a very blunt level, what it means to manage your communication with other people. And, um, I think there are some unhappy aspects of that because I do think that we're not all gifted in that way. I mean, some people have no poker face and that's an extra challenge in terms of being able to, um, express respect, even when you don't feel it or feel it especially well. Um, so there are interesting, I think, kind of moral, philosophical territories that, this, that I'm skimming past pretty, um, pretty blatantly here. But the general point is just that manners and civility are about communication. The body says things. And since it says things, if you, don't, if you aren't trying to get a handle on those things, then the communication that we're after with our pro-social gestures is not going to be fully successful.
0: Right. So in chapter eight, you return to the theme of righteous incivility. And if we're asking what would Confucius do, when is incivility acceptable?
1: Uh, In terms of what Confucius would do, sometimes he's rude. And I think part of what's intriguing about that is I don't think the text that I'm working with the most, the Analects, I don't think we're provided enough context to always know whether his rudeness is genuinely righteous. Um, So that, I mean, clearly sometimes he's just rude uh, as a kind of moral error, right? So sometimes there's an occasion where Confucius is listening to music out in the provinces and the performance is over the top and just extravagant. And, and so he makes a, an ungenerous judgment and it's, and says, it's like using an ox cleaver to kill a chicken. And clearly that there's no need for that kind of judgment in the context. And, uh, so he's rebuked, right in the passage, he's rebuked and he draws back and says, Oh, I was just, you know, kind of joking, but that doesn't help either. So I don't think Confucius is necessarily... Well, he's certainly not an infallible model on this. There, That's an occasion where he's just sort of seems to be stumbling backward into rudeness out of a kind of elitism, or maybe because he's a bit of an aesthetic. Um Other cases, it seems clear that he's self-consciously choosing to be rude in order to make a point. So he's visited by a messenger, and he tells his... Um, servants, right, to to inform the messenger that he's not available, um, that he's ill. And then before the messenger can leave, Confucius picks up his zither and starts playing so that the messenger is going to hear it. And it's very clear that he's going to feel the snub. That I think, I'm, I'm fairly confident that this is a case where Confucius is opting for righteous incivility. We don't know the, enough of the context to know if the issue is with the messenger or if the issue is with the messenger's master, um, but the presupposition here is that this is pointed rudeness undertaken deliberately in order to send a moral message, and the default assumption is, since it is Confucius, there must be something to it, um, So I don't, so that's, those are kind of examples, but they're not examples that I think are very helpful. Overall, I think trying to figure out when righteous incivility is justified is something one can only do once one has developed sophisticated and practiced judgment. My own sense is that the better one is at being civil and at being well-mannered, the better one's judgment will be about when righteous incivility is going to be appropriate. And that, I mean, it's not very satisfying, but it's partly to say that the judgment for genuinely righteous incivility is not something that develops independently of trying to be civil and trying to be polite. Uh, the a, a kind of improved judgment on righteous and civility would go hand in hand um, with becoming more civil. And the idea is that one of the things that you get um, in efforts to be civil and to be polite is that you get better, not just better judgments, but you become more attuned to situation. You would become a better social observer. You would become more imaginative about possible responses to people and so on. And those are the kinds of things that would help you in making judgments about righteous incivility, I think. So you have to have a kind of maturity in civility before you can make those judgments about incivility. Yeah, before you can, before you can make them well, I think. Um, which doesn't mean that we would put off the day, right? That, that we can't be rude until we're sages. Because um, that would basically, for most of us, mean we never get to be rude. Um, but I do think that, well, let me say a little bit more about <clears throat> one of the things that I think is a difference here. I think in our present civic and cultural context, righteous civility is enjoyed. Right? So it's particular, it's especially noticeable in online life. Right, but in online communications, people love kind of getting in the burn against someone else or roasting someone else, and there is a a phenomenon in which insults of other people then circulate and are liked and promoted and can go viral and and so on. And so there is a sense in which we get a, a high level of enjoyment out of witnessing or committing these uncivil interactions with other people or making uncivil comment on other people. Um, One of the things that I think you end up with, with the Confucian picture, is a version of righteous incivility that blocks that. Um, If I am well attuned to my own sociality, which means I, I am attuned to our mutual dependencies and the ways in which we, you know, sort of fundamentally need each other and we need to be able to cooperate and to collaborate and to coexist fruitfully together. The more that I am alert to that, and that's part of my consciousness, the more I will find occasions for being righteous in civility as a disappointment. So I will not delight in insulting other people. I will not get that little thrill and the laugh and the enjoyment. Um, I, instead, I'm more likely um, to want, you know, the, the, the Confucian virtuous person here is going to be somebody who wants a world where you can respect other people. You can be considerate and you can be tolerant. That the question of righteous incivility just doesn't come up because you're able to do all of that. We don't live in that world, but a, a Confucian virtuous person is going to be very disappointed by that. And so there's is, there is a level, there's an element of regret attached to righteous incivility. The parallel I draw in the book is um, one that I think is useful for this. However much any of us may enjoy being rude or uncivil, saying something cutting and insulting that would be hurtful um, to the person it's directed at. However much we may enjoy that, we don't enjoy it when we're doing it with people to whom we're well bonded and who we love. So I sometimes put this to my students and ask them, you you know, have you ever flipped off somebody driving down the highway? And of course, they, most of them have. And then I say, have you ever flipped off your grandma driving down the highway? And they're just aghast, right? Because the, they have no problem flipping off people on the highway. But the idea that they would flip off their grandmother on the highway is abhorrent to them. They don't want to do it. And that, I think, is, is the psychology that Confucian civility would cultivate, where when we would need to and flipping people off on the highway is never probably righteously uncivil but when we need to be righteously uncivil for a moral reason the sense here is that we would want ideally to do so with regret because effectively what we're saying with with that incivility is i morally judge you and i you know my behavior is going to set you outside the boundary of people with whom I can aspire to community. And we would be very cautious about that, and we would be regretful about having to do it. Um, and so we wouldn't have that you know, frisson of pleasure and the thrill that we can get and so on. And I think that that would be more in keeping with a version of righteous civility. It might look the same or, or in some cases at least look the same on the surface, but the idea is that the psychology would be different. It wouldn't be triumphal. It wouldn't be fun. Uh, it would be regrettable because it's, it's a sign that we just, we just can't do it, right? We can't um, operate with in community the way that we want to, and we feel it's morally necessary to signal that to someone, but having to signal that to someone is always a disappointment. In this idiom.
0: Right. So if that's the kind of disappointment of behaving badly, even when it's seemingly justified. In the final chapter, you talk about the rewards of being good. Uh,
1: So what (laughs) are
0: these? And you know, if you were thinking about what would you want readers to take away from the book at at the end and you know, sort of in terms of what it means to be good and to behave in a civil and well-mannered way.
1: Yeah, I mean I, in the in the last chapter, I mean I'm trying to put the chapters before this have built up a, a rather optimistic picture. Um and I think that that optimism is necessary as a kind of point of view one has to tr- to try to adopt. But I also think it's a point of view that's very hard to sustain. I mean, one of the more captivating things I think about the depiction of Confucius in the Analects is that he is a virtuous actor in an unvirtuous world who's really trying hard and none of it really pays off. Uh, not in his lifetime. I mean, it's all, most of my students react you know, with shock about that because of course, here we are thousands of years later, still talking about him, but he, you know, he died thinking none of it worked out. Um, and I think that, that that may be the reality. I don't put much stock in philosophical accounts that will say virtue is its own reward, or that I can you know, sort of develop a kind of happiness or inner joy just from being virtuous. I think that one of the commendable things about Confucianism is that it is sufficiently social that it's very dissatisfied with those kinds of answers. Right, it, it's not really much consolation if I'm good if the world I inhabit is mean and hostile and cruel. And so, right, I want that world to be different. That's part of what it means to be virtuous. Um, so at the end of the book, I'm sort of grappling with that issue and saying, "Look, what do you you know What do you get if you sort of make it your habit and your way to try to be the civil, pro social Person that is sketched in these texts, and part of what I want to say is, you know, it, it might not always be that happy. I mean, there there would be much in a, in a sense. There's more disappointment in it. Um, it's easier to be cynical. It's easier to just become outraged with other people. It's easier to retreat from social interaction than to do the kinds of things that the Confucians are sketching out. But I think that the you know, kind of what what keeps it going are uh, the kind of modest consolations that come from hope. Um, ultimately, I think that wanting something, even when you can't have it, can be a species of valuing it. And so I think that for the Confucians, there is something... Good about being clear about what you want right that that at least I'm valuing what what I really genuinely find valuable. I find human community, I find thriving relations with others. these are valuable things, things to be treasured um, they're not on hand, but there is a consolation in wanting them anyway because it is that that which at least allows me to value what is value worthy as opposed to giving up on it. And I have a, there's a, another sort of exemplar that I use in the book, a kind of, um, uh, I'm, I, I draw it from Studs Terkel's oral history of world war two, the good war. One of the completely fascinating, fascinating aspects of that text is that Terkel is effectively, collecting testimony from all sorts of ordinary men and women on their experience of the war and the title of the book The Good War is how we think of World War II yet what you get when you read what it was like for the people in it is that you know there was just a lot of kind of real ungoodness to it all uh, that their that their lives couldn't go on as usual instead they're abducted up into events that are um, tragic, are challenging, are heartrending in various ways, and um, acknowledging that and pressing on anyway is part of what I think you get from the Confucian picture. So the exemplar that I quote in the book is a, a veteran named Bill Bailey, who just says, "Look, you know, I, I, I just want to think." that we're still all part of something together, right? The human race. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. And he says, you know, I just want, you know, 10 years from now, if things are better than they are right now, I want somebody to kind of say, you know, those poor bastards, they really took a licking, but glory to them. And I think that that is the consolation, right? Not liking the world you inhabit, hoping that someone somewhere someday is going to have a better world than the one you have right now is a is a kind of consolation in itself right that you're that you're living for some other day and it might not be a good that is achieved in your own lifetime but the idea that it could be that some person some later day one's own child one's grandchildren or uh, generations not yet born will find the world a more accommodating, more thriving, more um, you know sort of civic and public minded place that's the best you can do, but that, I think is um, it's a very ordinary kind of hope, but that's part of what makes it, I think, a kind of profound species of hope
0: well that that's a very, I think, compelling way to end our discussion of your book. Uh, if we could have just a minute or two of your time, uh, what's next? Mm-hmm. Do you have a new
1: project in mind? <laughs> um, I have multiple sort of smaller projects. I'm um, noodling around with a, a book that would undertake to talk about, talk directly about Confucian treatments or early Chinese ethical treatments of grief and mourning. Um, That's something I've worked on before. And I think that it is another area where the Confucians are saying things that I don't see said elsewhere, um, but that I think are very important to say. Um, One of of those things, I think, um, is just the recognition shot through all the Confucian texts and many early Chinese texts that um, bereavement is difficult and even predictable commonplace bereavement is difficult, um, such as the deaths of parents Um, that there is uh, Shakespeare talks about that as being very ordinary. And at the same time, there's nothing ordinary about it, right? When it's one's own parent. Um, So I'm, I'm kind of, tinkering around with very, very early stages, thinking about developing a book um, that would work in that direction. Um, So not yet, but soon. Great. Thanks again, Amy. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh,
0: This has been New Books at East Asian Studies.